0: I'm Martin Reeves, this is the BHI Insights Podcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by the Professor of Technology and Operations Management at INSEAD, Samir Hasija, who has just authored a new book called The Phoenix Encounter, together with two other professors from INSEAD, and also the celebrated author, Ram Charan. So welcome, Samir.
1: Martin, thanks for having me.
0: I think we're all familiar with the phoenix, the bird that sets fire to itself and rises from its own ashes. I think people can imagine what that means in the corporate context, but could you just give us a few words on the the core thesis of your book?
1: Martin, the core thesis is the common problem in what leads to firms typically getting disrupted. And the problem is blinkered thinking. And our core thesis is that if you have to fight blinkered thinking, get away from the mindsets of the past, then you have to imagine a completely new world, a world in which you get destroyed and you rise from the ashes and recreate your future. And should you be able to do that, you can perhaps preempt getting disrupted and hence create a future proof organization. So that's the basic idea of what this book is all about.
0: So it's a topic I think that people are generally familiar with. We have you know, ambidexterity and uh, disruption and self disruption. Strikes me that the interesting emphasis that you give is on the forgetting or the self destruction part. Would that be fair?
1: I would say so, yes, absolutely.
0: So you have a methodology. You call these acts of self-disruption Phoenix Encounters and you have a three times two-step methodology. Could you walk us briefly through that? How do you self-disrupt effectively?
1: So as you can imagine, imagining your destruction is not so easy and we are trying to fight blinker thinking and blinker thinking in itself can stop you from imagining a destruction. So we do have a systematic way of overcoming blinker thinking and the three steps essentially involve Laying down the groundwork, laying down the groundwork essentially involves understanding what's going on in the world, scanning the environment, scanning for technology, scanning for trends which are beyond your geography and beyond your industry, getting ready to open your mind. Once you've done that and you have a lot of stimulus from the external world outside of your organization, we then walk into the battlefield, which is the war game part of the encounter where you imagine a new organization which is unrestricted in resources, both technological as well as you know political capital and so on and so forth. And imagine what a business like that could do to destroy you. And once you do that, then you start thinking, well, if that was to happen as an organization, what could I do to protect myself? And that's your defense part. So the war game is the second stage of the encounter. And the third stage, the most important stage that comes out of the first two is the breakthrough, which is once you've gone through the groundwork and you've done the war game, then you have to try and understand, given this debate that we just had, what should be my strategic priorities that I need to have as an organization going forward? And what informs your strategic priorities is the simulated war game that you just did to try and understand. What are the capabilities that you need to build that you currently don't have? And so we kind of break it down into these three steps, which what we've realized is systematically help organizations and leaders of organizations to overcome their biases and be able to imagine from a fresh perspective what their organizations in the future may look like.
0: Thank you. That's clear. I wonder if we could make it vivid for people by giving an example. Since your book is new, I presume that the companies that have done something like this don't necessarily use the same words. Could you pick a good archetypical example of a self-disruptive company and show how they do something equivalent to the process that you're suggesting?
1: Sure, Martin. So actually, one of the blessings of being an academic is we get to deal with hundreds and thousands of executives. The book has come out of our experience with doing the encounter with more than 1,500 global executives, business leaders from all over the world in all sorts of industries. So we actually talk about a lot of examples which are original in the book. Of course, they're all uh, you know, anonymized for the sake of protecting everybody's identity. But one of my favorite examples is, which we talk a lot about in the book, is about a financial service organization, which essentially understood that very quickly the need for their services may not even exist in the sense that whatever they do, they're almost like an intermediary and can be very quickly replaced by new companies. In fact, even something like Google or Amazon could come in and replace them for all the financial services they provide. They're not doing it because perhaps they're not interested, but that's not a good position to be in. To be in business just because somebody else is not interested in disrupting you is not a very comfortable position to be in. So we did the Phoenix Encounter uh, with this organization. And what came out of it was quite interesting where, where they started realizing that they certainly cannot maintain a position as the typical financial service provider as an intermediary and they need to start thinking about how to how to get involved with their customers entire uh, financial needs and not just sell products to them but actually start thinking about solutions in terms of end-to-end lifestyle or life cycle solutions when it comes to money so anything money how can we be a part of our customers life journey And come to think of it, it sounds sort of obvious in hindsight, but this is certainly not the direction in which this organization was going. But once we did the encounter, they were able to radically reinvent themselves and start walking down this slightly different path than they were planning to previously. I see. Now, of course, whether this is going to be successful in the long run or not, that time will tell. But this is something that's going on as we speak. And they're trying to transform themselves as we speak.
0: So the techniques that you suggest, um, scenario planning, wargaming, red and blue teaming, they may be familiar to many of our listeners. What is the plus alpha of the, the Phoenix Encounter method? Is it stitching these techniques together or is it the manner of application of the techniques? Essentially, what's the essence of the new part of your message?
1: See, the new part of our message is the stage at which these methods should be used. Our observation is typically, you know, think about something like red teaming. It's an idea that has already been thought of. It is a strategy. You know what you're going to do. And what you're going to do with red teaming is, in some sense, find a devil's advocate or try and figure out what could go wrong with an idea. We believe the Phoenix Encounter is putting all of these concepts or all of these frameworks to a blank slate, to start afresh, to not anchor yourself with an idea or a strategy or a playbook that you have and stress test it. We are talking about starting with a blank playbook and then go through the encounter to start creating a much wider set of options of what are the possible things that you could do. And then you could use these existing frameworks that you mentioned to try and figure out, amongst the options that just got created from the encounter, what are the two or three options that you may consider to pilot, for example. So what we are doing, is we are using it as an option generation mechanism, which is very different than what these frameworks are typically used for. One
0: of the challenges, of the course, is... You don't know what you don't know. And maybe you can't know what you don't know in the sense that it depends upon the actions of others that may not have been decided yet. So one can imagine a scenario where you applied all of the disruptive thinking techniques correctly. You guessed a plausible scenario, but it turned out to be the wrong one. How do you guard against over specificity, overfit against a particular scenario?
1: There is no silver bullet here. So you cannot guarantee it. All you're doing is giving yourself the best chance possible. However, to improve your chances, what you do, of course, are a few things that we talk about in the groundwork. Number one, you got to scan really, really wide. Often people scan only things which are related to their industry, which are related to their context, and don't necessarily think about things which are outside of their industry. Think about the automotive industry. Almost all the disruption that's coming in the automotive industry today has nothing to do With the automotive industry, the the technology that is affecting it is coming from all sorts of places which are not necessarily automotive uh, heavy. So you need to scan wide and even geography. You don't stop yourself by saying, hey, I don't have operations in emerging markets, so why should I worry about what's going on in those markets? It doesn't matter where you're operating. It's very important to scan in what's going on in every part of the world to try and figure out can this affect me in some way that I haven't yet thought about? Number two, when you do the encounter, to the extent possible, we encourage creating encounter teams which are diverse and bring in multiple perspectives. If you're able to bring folks from outside your organizations, perhaps stakeholders, perhaps some partners, perhaps you know, suppliers, buyers, and, and other stakeholders, people that have nothing to do with your industry and are, and are in no shape or form a competition for you, but are willing to facilitate or take part in an encounter so that you're able to get an external perspective. If you're not able to do that, at least within the organization, try and see if you can have different parts of the organizations represented so that you're able to get perspectives that perhaps do not lead to groupthink or do not lead to, you know, I hate to use that word, but in the box kind of thinking. So once you do that, you're giving yourself a chance to be able to overcome the inability to see things that that you normally wouldn't imagine, but there's no guarantee, Martin. I mean, there's no way that you're going to be sure that you're going to nail down the scenario that's going to unfold in the future. But Paddy always likes to say this, to be forewarned, to have even thought about it once, is to be forearmed. That if certain things do happen that at least you had had one conversation about, then you wouldn't be scrambling completely from scratch. You may have a little bit of a heads up that may give you that little window of opportunity to survive and perhaps even counter-react to any incoming disruption.
0: Yes, as they say, plans are often worthless, but planning is everything. The sensitization to possible disruption is part of the value, as well as the specific forecast, if you like, of a particular type of disruption.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that we've observed is that even doing this exercise has a lot of side benefits, including building the burning platform which then makes the organization more adaptable, more amenable to change, more amenable to agile thinking, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of other benefits that come along and not just the playbook of what you need to do, as you said.
0: A related question is the trade-off between exploring and exploiting, because at one extreme, it may be that the core business model needs doubling down on, and distracting from that could be harmful. At the other extreme, that could be an irrelevant constraint and the broadest possible thinking, even beyond the boundaries of the industry, may be necessary. Now, you know, you could argue that on the whole, the bias of corporations is to be too narrow and therefore, you know, one should lean against that. But still, there's a sort of calibration issue. How far out? How do you think about that question in practice?
1: This is something that senior leadership is almost always grappling with, right? And for good reasons or bad reasons, again, this is not something that has a definitive answer or a silver bullet to overcome that. What of course we find is that almost invariably, the answer is somewhere in the middle. The balance is created by, in my opinion, by experimenting and piloting. While the core business can be run the way it is run, it still shouldn't stop us from having every now and then uh, certain pilots or experiments being run in order to test out what is going to happen, what is going to stick, what's not going to stick. Now, the reason I say that is just take, for example, Google, a very solid business, a very solid company. Even they faced the exact same tension that you were talking about, which is why they felt, in my opinion, compelled to separate out Google and create this entity called Alphabet, where Google will still do what Google is doing and run the business in the most profitable manner. And then Alphabet tries to do all the crazy stuff and try to figure out, you know, what is the next thing that we can create in? And can we do something out there which is not just exploiting our current capabilities and perhaps look at creating new capabilities? So somewhere down the line, organizations should think like this and try and create this balance. But the balance is the key word here. I don't think any going extreme on any one direction would be fruitful in the long run. And
0: next, I wanted to ask you a question about essence versus appearances. I can't remember who coined the term, but there's this term innovation theater, which is doing all the right things, doing all the right exercises, but not addressing the essential issues. So, you know, playing all the games, having the war gaming, but somehow missing the point. How do you make sure these exercises are real? Because I think we've all observed the incumbent companies that do all the right things but never manage to change, and those that, that get this very difficult prediction exercise right, or at least right enough to survive and thrive under new circumstances. What's, what's the difference, do you think?
1: My view on this is that you need to not only do these exercises, but you need to create ownership behind these exercises as well. And the way to do that is, you know, every organization, and we sort of say this in the book too, you need a combination of the dreamers and the doers. You go in one direction too much and you're going to have a problem. If you have only the doers, you're not going to be able to to innovate in the future. And you only have the dreamers, then you go down to the problem that you're saying, the innovation theater. There's a lot of talk, but nothing really happens. And so you have to create a balance between these two. We believe the balance is created by not only carrying out the Phoenix encounter, but actually giving ownership to the teams that are participating in it by actually trying to figure out how people who actually take part in these simulations, you know, put their hands up and say, you know what? I'm now going to try and and take this over and, and I'm going to pilot this. And of course, this requires, in my view, is to run the encounter throughout the organization and not just have it at the C-suite level and tell rest of the organization that, hey, this is what we've come up with and here is the direction we're going to go. Or to run encounters with the board in a strategy junket in a resort somewhere and then leave it at that, which is means that nothing really happens in the rest of the organization. So my feeling is, again, you need the balance to combine the dreamers and doers. And then you need to run this method, this process across the organization and then pass the ownership on to folks to carry it to its solution.
0: I think um, what you're saying is obviously very valuable, Samir, but it's also very hard. Now, certainly we can give examples of companies that have completely transformed themselves and changed circumstances. Nokia and uh, Microsoft and the Apple turnaround come to mind, amongst others. But still, there are not so many examples, proportionately speaking. And of course, there is an alternative to what you're suggesting, which is to allow true Schumpeterian competition to actually allow things to fail and to recirculate resources to uh, to new vehicles. In a sense, what you're suggesting is for the old vehicles to be, to become imaginative, to have foresight, to reinvent themselves and to survive, rather than to fail and to recirculate resources. What argument would you make that, that your way is the less wasteful or more effective or more feasible route?
1: This is evolution, right? So to link it back to basic biology of survival, I would say there are organizations and leaders who will take the Phoenix method, who would reinvent themselves and actually create a very solid business model going forward. And then there are which would not and eventually give way to new businesses just replacing them. And in the world that we live in, we're obviously going to see a mixture of all these organizations come about. What I'm trying to say here is I'm not sure our method is better. I just feel that there are certain leaders and certain organizations which will self-select into the Phoenix Encounter method because they are more amenable and they are more capable of transforming themselves. They just needed some structure. They needed some help. And hence, they would self-select into it. And the ones that don't self-select into it were perhaps the ones that were never going to make it. And hence, it's not such a bad idea that there is this, transfer of resources when they get replaced by more efficient, more nimble, and more forward-looking organizations, which is a natural course of imperative uh, evolution, so to speak. I think that's the way I view these things. I don't know how you feel about that, though.
0: That makes sense. And presumably one of those factors that makes you amenable to the Phoenix method is having what you're calling Phoenix leadership. And you talk about something called extra strategic perception in the book. So let's take a an average Fortune 500 company that's trying to reinvent itself. You know, one has brilliant transformational leadership, the other doesn't. What's the difference, do you think?
1: Again, I think the, the difference is going to be, as you said, the, the Phoenix leadership or what we call as a Phoenix attitude, which is to be able to envision what it's going to take to take an organization which has been doing something for decades, if not longer, and then try and change the way business is being done in order to provide, create and capture value in the ecosystem in which you operate. Now that requires a lot of vision. And keep in mind, vision alone is not gonna do it because that requires very strong execution capabilities at the same time. And the Phoenix attitude is something that is able to combine these very big picture vision ideas with very high execution capabilities At the same time, keep the personal leadership motivated. So long answer to your question, what's going to be the difference is going to be whether the leadership of an organization or the leaders that are responsible for taking the organization forward, do they have this capability? Have they built this Phoenix attitude in themselves? Keep in mind, Martin, I believe these kind of capabilities can be built by habits and tools and practices. They're not necessarily capabilities that you're born with these are certainly trainable but it's not like a switch it's not like you wake up one morning and decide hey i'm going to have the phoenix attitude this takes a lot of practice a lot of training but it can be developed
0: let's take one of the most extreme examples of disruption the ecosystem and digital platform disruption very heterogeneous Uh, these firms you know producer incumbents and digital ecosystems think in very different ways digital ecosystems often have a winner takes all characteristic they scale very rapidly it's hard to think of many examples of companies surviving an attack from a, a native uh, digital ecosystem player perhaps apple comes to mind there might be others what would be the secret to surviving or your observations on leadership in that sort of situation
1: yeah it's obviously not straightforward and and what you have to do is you have to think carefully in in how you want to survive this. And there's more than one way to do this, right? So one way to do this is to say, can I preempt this in a way that I become the creator of the digital ecosystem? And a lot of organizations are shy to do that because they believe that they may end up cannibalizing their business. And as a result, they end up failing because, you know, naturally the digital platform is going to cannibalize them. The question is whether they created it or did somebody else create it. Now, think about heavy equipment industry, right? Think about firms like Caterpillar. They could have said, listen, these platforms, the uberization in our industry will come eventually and, you know, we're not going to survive this. Or they could have said, listen, let's just do it. Let's just create our own platform where our customers can start sharing equipment with each other and we'll see what happens, even though there is going to be cannibalization, but perhaps there would be other ways to monetize this platform that we can create. And again, there's no guarantee that this is going to be successful. So what Caterpillar ended up doing is they ended up buying this platform called investing and eventually even buying this platform called Yard Club. And Yard Club is the, for a lack of a better word, the Uber of heavy uh, construction equipment where you know buyers can share equipment with each other. And this is not something that Caterpillar has rolled out everywhere in every market. This is still in its experimental stage. And they're trying to figure out whether this is a viable business model to work. And by doing so, by preempting it, Caterpillar has made it really hard for somebody else to come and do it. So just a small example to illustrate that if you are ahead of the curve, then you can take certain steps to be able to handle the situation in a way that perhaps gives you a fighting chance. But if you're going to shy away from it, then you have no fighting chance, right? And that's the whole point of the the encounter exercise.
0: Yes, I think that uh, jives with our analysis, which shows that preemptive transformation, preemptive self-disruption is quite rare but actually the success rate of those transformations is actually uh, proportional to the earliness of the intervention. So preemption does seem to be incredibly important if if rare, because of course the skeptics for what we're talking about today are always right until they're wrong. And then it's usually too late, of course. So Samira, the final question I wanted to ask you about is the COVID situation. That's not a competitive shock, but it's a, a severe system shock. And Interestingly, some companies seem to have done much better than others in terms of resilience and reinvention, reimagination, even within the same industry, even in the hardest hit industries. And I'm wondering whether you have any observations about success factors that you've observed in the COVID crisis?
1: Yes, Martin. So first of all, I would say that the Phoenix Encounter method certainly encourages participants to imagine disruption or destruction that comes beyond just competitive threats, including socio-political issues, demographical issues, uh, environmental issues, and so on and so forth. So certainly the method is supposed to open up the optionality of what are the things that you can do for all sorts of threats. Now, in terms of COVID in particular, uh, rather than talking about a company, I guess I can give you an example from the, the best example that comes to mind is, is companies in, or businesses in China. Right, compared to businesses in Europe or even the US. You see that even during the big lockdown period that China faced in the early phases of COVID, their businesses were able to to do quite well. And one of the main reasons they were able to show this sort of resilience and agility to overcome the lockdown period was because of the deep and highly effective digitization that their entire economy has gone through, which allows their businesses to be very agile and adaptive. To give you an example, Apple operating in China was able to use Metuan, which is a food delivery platform, uh, to deliver phones to customers in their homes because food delivery platforms were very active during the lockdown period. So this agile shift that Apple was able to do in China is not something that is very easy for them to do in Europe or in the US, simply because the entire ecosystem, the entire Infrastructure in, in China is so digitized that switching from one mode of operations to another overnight is not so difficult, which, as you know, in the analog world would be very difficult. So, just a small example to illustrate that there are businesses which, due to their setup and due to their agility with advanced technologies and, and advanced business models, are able to leverage that agility and overcome shocks like we, what we saw due to COVID, whereas businesses which are still functioning on on legacy setups and analog operations are unable to do so.
0: I think it's a great example actually, Samir. Essentially you're tracing the connection between the digitization agenda and resilience and reinvention. So I think that's probably a, a fairly powerful general point there. But I think we've um, come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. I've been speaking to Samir Hasija, professor at INSEAD, who's just written this book called The Phoenix Encounter Method, which was published by McGraw-Hill, in October 2020, uh, together with Ian Woodward, Paddy Padmanaban, and Ram Charan. Thank you again, Samir.
1: Martin, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.